This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 347th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new ankylosaurid find. I knew you'd be excited about that one. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You were the one that pointed it out to me because it didn't make a lot of headlines. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Tani Colagrius, and our fun fact. But before we get into all of that, Real quick, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we have a new patron, and that's Stegosaurus Noah. So thank you very much, Stegosaurus Noah, for joining our patronage and getting us closer to our 200 patron mark, where after we reach 200 patrons, we're going to do a live Q&A on YouTube. I think we're, as of this recording, at like 195, which we've been sort of fluctuating (laughs) around for most of the year. So if we could get like five more people to join and nobody leaves at that time period, hey, we'll do our live Q&A really soon. Mm -hmm. So if you want to help us reach that milestone, please do. But I also want to round out our shout outs with nine more patrons, and they are Remy Rodriguez, Viatis, Argentrinosaurus, Sarasaurus Rex, Jurassic Jim, Bill Jago, Jared Copeland, Myco Raptor, and Melina and Manoli. Yes, thank you so much. I mean, Garrett already said it all, but your support means a lot to us, and that's why we are able to keep the show going, and we're excited to do a live Q&A soon, so hopefully we can. And if you want to join our growing community and get some more perks like access to our Discord or other perks like uh, requesting a dinosaur of the day, then go to our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Before we get into the news, ooh, I get to say it today. We have a quick correction. One of our listeners who grew up in San Antonio in Texas very kindly told us that we've been pronouncing the Witty Museum incorrectly. It's pronounced witty, not wit. So we will keep that in mind for going forward. Hopefully we get it right. It's spelled W-I-T-T-E, which seems like it'd be wit or maybe white, but I would have never guessed witty. (laughs) So thank you. So jumping into the news... As always, we like to kick it off with a new dinosaur. I didn't even mention this at the beginning. I should have. It's no ankylosaur, (laughs) so what are we even doing? Yeah. It's a new theropod, also known as a raptor. And it is, in fact, velociraptor sized. So you can even say it's like a new velociraptor type dinosaur and not even be stretching the truth that much. (laughs) It's from Tajikistan which is northeast of Afghanistan, if you're not familiar. The bone was actually originally found, and the bone being that there is only one bone, unfortunately, that was found of this dinosaur, 
was found in the 1960s, and it's from an area called the Fergana Valley. Mm. The Fergana Valley covers northern Tajikistan and parts of Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. They sort of wrap around each other in a really interesting way in that spot, or Tajikistan kind of sticks up. <laughs> but it's this round spot, so it it's not huge. It's maybe like 100 or 200 miles in diameter, I would say, this valley. And it has quite a few late Cretaceous dinosaur finds. Oh, nice. Yeah, I was surprised because I've never heard of the Fergana Valley before. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right because I couldn't find a pronunciation guide for it. And I don't think we've ever talked about it on our podcast before. I did go through the Paleobio database and poked around at a whole bunch of points and found that there were tons of Cretaceous things there. And then just outside of that valley, it looks like there's some Jurassic stuff. So maybe like the valley filled in with some newer, more recent material, or <laughs> yeah. the mountains got worn down more around it or something like that. But in the Paleobio database, I had I didn't see any finds or articles from the last 15 years. So I do think it's the first time we've mentioned the area on our show, which is pretty cool. It's a new area that hadn't heard about. Mm -hmm. The new raptor is named Consinathus, and Consinathus means jaw from Kansai, and that's because the area where it's found was Kansai. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and then Nathus we see all the time. Sometimes we pronounce it Nathus, just depends. And then the species name is Sogdianus, after Sogdia, which is an ancient civilization that encompassed the Fergana Valley. So it was a lot bigger than the Fergana Valley, but it included it. So it's sort of place name Saurus, place name Ensis. But the genus is a smaller place and the species is a larger place, which is a little unusual. Usually it goes the other way. Yeah. It's also the first named one of that area. Yeah. I think I was trying to confirm that on, on the Paleobio database to see if there were any like unique dinosaurs named from the area. But it's hard to tell exactly since you can't really filter by region like I can't put in the Fergana Valley and I wanted to do it by like a geographical feature rather than by a country because they're all jumbled up in that spot like the borders are sort of zigzaggy and you know it's sort of like defining the difference between Montana and Canada mm -hmm. it's like it's the same <laughs> rocks it doesn't really matter if it's from northern Montana or southern Canada like the dinosaurs didn't care they were all coexisting regardless so I couldn't quite tell if this is the only one from the Fergana Valley, but I think you're right. I think it might be the only one from that region of Tajikistan, which has been named. Mm -hmm. Certainly the only one in any recent history. The find is from the Santonian, which is about 85 million years ago. The Santonian, fortunately, is a very short stage. It's only like two or three million years long. So we have a pretty good ballpark on what age it is. But again, they only found one bone, which is a single dentary, or in other words, a lower jaw. So like half of the lower jaw, but in dinosaurs, especially theropods, they weren't always fused in the front. So that's how they could tell how they could tell what that it was velociraptor like. I think it was based on a few things. So they saw that it has 12 tooth sockets, which is a good clue in and of itself. Also, the size of it is pretty small. There also look to be two unerupted teeth in it. So I'm not sure because unfortunately the article is in Russian and it's behind a paywall and I couldn't figure out even how to buy it. I was trying to, but like the whole login thing was in Russian mm. and I was just like, it was too difficult. <laughs> so eventually I gave up. So I was basing this on other articles and based on the abstract, 
but they might have done a CT scan to look at what appear to be two unerupted teeth. And teeth are a really good way to identify a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. So if they could see the details of teeth that are unerupted, maybe they could identify it as a velociraptorine in that way. And I didn't mention the article. So it was written by A.O. Averyanov and A.V. Lopatin and published in the reports of the Russian Academy of Sciences, Earth Science. There were also a couple other unique things that I think either helped define it as a velociraptorine or a little bit as its own species. And that said, it had a pretty strong curve up at the front and back of the jaw. So it has sort of just a rounded lower jaw. You don't see that in all the theropods. Sometimes they sort of slope down a little bit in the front or they flatten out, mm -hmm. not in this case. And then there's also a very small bump for a chin, which I did not even notice until they I saw the picture where there's like an arrow to it. And it's like, there's the chin. <laughs> it's like, I guess it's just like a little tiny, but it looks like a pimple almost like that size oh. on the chin. Yeah. But when it was covered in skin. Yeah. You never know how big it got like puffed out with keratin or whatever mm -hmm. on top of it. I guess collagen's maybe more likely, but yeah. It was really hard to estimate the size from just the jaw, but it is roughly about two meters long, they said, which would make it similar to Velociraptor. And additionally, since it's just a jaw, it's also pretty hard to tell what age it was. So maybe that wasn't the maximum size. Can't be really certain about that. Mm -hmm. But phylogenetically, a jaw is a pretty good bone to use. And I, this is partly why I assume they had a tooth, because if it's a jaw without teeth, it might not be as useful, but they think it sits between the early Cretaceous Deinonychus and the late Cretaceous Achiroraptor and Velociraptor. So from the press release, the way they put it is it's filling in a 20 million year gap in the fossil record between those two groups mm. within Velociraptorinae, which is a fairly small group. It's got like 10 Velociraptor type dinosaurs, including Velociraptor. So it's probably the most popular group of raptors, <laughs> I would presume. So it could be really useful. I hope that there's more stuff to find in this area because we don't have a ton of 85 million year old stuff. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is filling in a 20 million year old gap. And there is a ton of dinosaur finds from that area that I just, most of it's written in Russian. So this is a time I was wishing I knew Russian so I could read through these papers. But fortunately, there is a book by L.A. Nesov in Russian, which title translates as Dinosaurs of Northern Eurasia, New Data About Assemblages, Ecology, and Paleobiogeography. Oh, perfect. Yes. And by Northern Eurasia, they're basically talking about Eastern Europe, how, how we would call it in the U.S. at least. It was written in 1995, and it accounts for most of the dinosaur finds listed in the Paleobio database. If you go through there, you just see this reference over and over and over and over <laughs> and over again. It's not the original paper that described it, but I think it might be the most recent one that was in English because it got translated to English, I think, shortly after, maybe at the same time that it was published in Russian. Mm -hmm. And they explained, like, we want people that speak English or speak other languages and don't know Russian to be able to learn about all these finds in this area. Oh, good. Yeah. So obviously it was helpful for the people putting together the Paleobio database, mm -hmm. but also for people like me, because I found a section of that paper, because it's free to access, that shows the area in Tajikistan and Tashkent, which is just across the Uzbekistan border. And that includes a ton of late Cretaceous dinosaur theropods. So this is still in that same Fergana Valley. 
For theropods, they talked about an unidentified dromaeosaurid, which presumably is the dromaeosaurid in this paper. Right, because you said it was found in the 60s, so they knew about it. Exactly. For some of them, they gave other papers and they referenced like the author that named it and other times, like for the unidentified dromaeosaurid, it was a little more vague. So it's kind of hard. They don't have specimen numbers in the paper, so it's a little bit hard to nail down for some of them. But I'm guessing that is this paper, so we have now identified it. They also talk about an allosaur-type bone. At least that's how it was described in 1925. Nesov said it's possibly a tyrannosaur, mm. and that's how it's listed on the paleobio database. There are also ornithomimids. There are what were called stegosaurs in 1939, but Nesov said are actually probably ankylosaurids. Mm-hmm. There is a hadrosaur, several hadrosaur bones. There's hypsilophodontids, therizinosaurs, troodontids, oviraptorids, ceratopsians, and lots of other fragments and unidentified dinosaurs. That's a good mix. It is, yeah, it's amazing. So it just seems like such a cool fauna and, and a really key point in time, 85 million years ago, where we don't have a ton of stuff that I really hope that, you know, people get out there and find some new stuff mm-hmm. because it, it just seems like a great place to do some paleontology. Although I'm not sure about the quality of the fossils because a lot of these, when I was saying like hadrosaurs, hypsilophodonts, that's as close as they could get to the actual species. Too fragmentary. Exactly. A lot of it's like a single bone or it's like a piece of a bone and they're like, oh, that's curved in a way that we think it's probably a hadrosaur, Mm -hmm. but it's not enough to get much more specific. So it's possible that the reason we don't have a whole bunch of paleontology going on here is that the quality of the fossils is just not exciting enough. So people would rather work in other places. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Or it's just too difficult to identify. Yeah. But they named one. Yeah. That was previously unidentified, so it's So maybe things are changing. Yeah, hopefully. I also need to go into my paper on the ankylosaur (laughs) because it's pretty exciting. The title of this one is The First Definitive Ankylosaurian Dinosaur from the Cretaceous of Jilin Province, Northeastern China. And it was written by Wen Jie Zheng and others and published in Cretaceous Research. So the Jilin Province is the second farthest northeast province in China. So it's in that little upper piece on the northeastern end. Mm-hmm. It's northeast of Liaoning, which we talk about all the time. Oh, yeah. So many fossils come out of there. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton from Liaoning, but there are very few from Jilin. Yet. Or yeah. So far. <laughs> exactly. This dinosaur was actually found near the northeast end of the border with North Korea, and it's in the Yanbian Korean Autonomous Prefecture. And the city is Yanji that it was found in, or found closest to. As the title implies, there are ankylosaurs that were found in other areas of China, not the Jilin province. There have been ankylosaurs found at at least 14 other localities around China. And in the paper, they describe ankylosaurs in China as, quote unquote, very abundant, (laughs) which I like. I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) Previously, the area in Jilin was known for some dinosaur footprints, including, quote, theropods, ornithopods, and quadrupedal dinosaurs of uncertain affinities, end quote. So maybe ankylosaurs. Exactly. (laughs) This may be one of those uncertain affinity quadrupeds from the area. The new bone, again, it's unfortunately only one bone, is a definitive ankylosaur, but it's not enough to name a new species. So even though it's the first definitive ankylosaur, it's not definitive what species it is. (laughs) 
which I thought was kind of interesting. So it's like, we're sure it's ankylosaur. We're really sure about that. Mm-hmm. We just have no idea which one. There you go. They're not naming for the sake of naming. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it might be. I think Victoria Arbor and others who have worked on, like, you name an ankylosaur based on the head. Mm-hmm. And that's how you name it. I think that's actually holding up well. If people don't find a head, they're not naming new ankylosaurs anymore, which is really nice to have that consistency. Mm-hmm. So the single bone that they found is an incomplete left ilium, which is the upper hip bone, same as our upper hip bone. On ankylosaurs, the ilium has a long, low shape, like you'd expect for a long, low ankylosaur. And it also has a, quote, shallow cup-like acetabulum. The acetabulum is the hip socket where the femur joins with it. Mm -hmm. So it's important because it kind of helps it hold all its weight. Yeah. And I guess it's got a very unique shape in ankylosaurs, which makes it more definitive (laughs) in addition to just the overall shape of the bone that is an ankylosaur. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the bone is missing part of the front and the back, although it looks pretty complete when you look at it. So it's it's not missing like really large chunks, I don't think. And it's still about 64 centimeters or two feet long and about (laughs) 25 and a half centimeters or about 10 inches wide. Ankylosaurs are so big. Yeah, that just the hip is like two feet long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They found the bone in 2017 in a joint expedition between IVPP from China and Fukui University and Fukui Prefectural Dinosaur Museum, which are both in Japan. But unfortunately, they're not sure how old the bone is. The geological age is still, quote unquote, controversial. Oh, interesting. (laughs) But basically, you could say it's very roughly 100 million years old, probably plus or minus about 10 million years, which is fairly early. If it was an ankylosaurid, that would be early. Mm -hmm. If it's a notosaur, not so much on the super early side, but still an important dinosaur, as all ankylosaurs are. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's biased here. No, of course not. (laughs) But unfortunately, we also don't know how old it is. Or scientifically speaking, what ontogenetic stage it is. So we don't know any of its ages. Oh, yeah. Like how old of a bone it is or how old the animal was when it died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Those mysterious ankylosaurs. It is. It's also a problem for estimating how long it is because since the hips change a little bit in proportion as the animal grows, it's hard to get a body size estimate when you don't know what ontogenetic stage it's in. They estimated it's between five and five and a half meters, which would make it 16 to 18 feet long and medium sized. But, you know, that just depends on whether or not they're guessing the right ontogenetic stage. And then, you know, we don't know how big it would have gotten as full grown if it wasn't yet full grown. So for both of these dinosaurs, it's a hashtag need more fossils situation. Yes. For the first one, they did name a new dinosaur based on it. Second one, they didn't. Oh, that's true. The first one I was thinking because we're talking about all these other fossils found in that area, but hadn't been named, but they're too fragmentary. So in general, just need more fossils. Yes. I I would love to hear more details about that area. I love it when we get good snapshots of a specific area, like Mm -hmm. how we have the Hell Creek Formation. We know tons about all the dinosaurs there and everything. Mm -hmm. Those are the most exciting rather than just like little smatterings from all over the place. Yeah, we want enough information that you could build a scientifically realistic game around it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) or a book or a movie (laughs) (laughs) or some cool art. Or all of the above. Yeah, preferably. (laughs) We're not greedy.
This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So you've got some more news from Asia. First in Nagasaki, Japan, researchers found a 30-foot or 9-meter-long ornithopod shoulder. It may be a new species. It's from the Cretaceous. It's about 81 million years old. It was found in May 2016, and then they started restoring it in 2018 and finished just recently, which is why it's in the news now, but they don't have a paper on it yet. It's a left shoulder blade from a hadrosauroid. And if anyone is in Nagasaki, you can see a replica of it on display at Nagasaki City Hall. So it's interesting when things go on display before they're named. (laughs) They're like still being studied like it might be a new species. Go and see it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess the Titanosaur and the Notosaur, you know, Borealopelta and Patagotite Mm -hmm. in reverse order. (laughs) Sometimes when they're just so cool, you can't, they can't wait to put them on display. Yeah. It's too exciting. Yeah, especially when it's replicas. Oh, true. You said it's a replica that's on display. Mm-hmm. Good point. So you're excited to share it. People can see it. And then you can still study it. Yeah. So going back to China, in Sichuan, China, there's a new type of dinosaur footprints that's been named Eubrontes nobitae. And it refers to nobita, which is a character in the Japanese cartoon Doraemon. The film (laughs) Nobita's Dinosaur came out in 1980 and then Nobita's New Dinosaur came out in 2020. And I'm pretty sure we talked about that movie then. (laughs) Lita Shing named it and said that it looks somewhat like swimming goldfish, these dinosaur footprints. I am not familiar enough with Doraemon to know, you know, if swimming goldfish is a part of it. (laughs) (laughs) 
But it sounds like these movies, Nobita's Dinosaur and Nobita's New Dinosaur, were very popular, and especially the first one was influential. These footprints, they were found last July in Sichuan, and it's estimated to belong to a carnivorous dinosaur that was nearly 13 feet or 4 meters long. And you can see a fossil replica starting November 30th at the Tokyo National Museum. Interesting. Yeah, lots of replicas going on display. I guess I could kind of see how Ubrantes could look like goldfish because it's like three toes sticking out and maybe the way the toes bulge out could be sort of like a fish <laughs> and then like it gets narrower before going to the tail. So yeah, maybe that's and they the... look kind of like they're swimming together. Yeah, maybe in the movie they like swam in a formation like out from a, a singular point. <laughs> I'm thinking I need to watch that movie now. I guess so. We've got more track news. So in Broome, Western Australia, a retired science teacher, Peter White, found new sauropod and theropod tracks next to each other. Peter's been visiting this site the last seven years. He's from Sydney. And this area, we talk about Broome a lot. There's tracks exposed there all the time from storms. Apparently, nearly every beach in Broome has dinosaur tracks. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's it's cool that he found it, and it sounds like they're finding new stuff all the time. And scientists are piecing all the tracks together to learn more about the dinosaurs in the area. It includes 22 different species, and then they were living there about 130 million years ago. Yeah, that's crazy. We saw like a recreation. Somebody recently put together most of the tracks in like a single sort of like digitized map situation. It's so long. Mm -hmm. There's so many tracks down the beach. It's nuts. You can learn a lot from tracks. Yeah. It's a long trip too to go from Sydney to Broome every year for seven years. Yeah. It's basically complete opposite ends of the country. <laughs> and I don't know if there are direct flights from Sydney to Broome because Broome isn't exactly the largest town in Australia. I don't know. But it's not a bad trip. He must enjoy it. He's been doing it for almost a decade. Yeah. In Germany, in Rayburg Lacombe, there's two Pladiosaurus skeletons, they were found in Switzerland, that are now on display at Munchehagen Dinosaur Park. And these Pladiosaurs are named Emil and Emily. There's 330 bones. These Pladiosaurs lived 210 million years ago. They were found in Frick, in a quarry where many other dinosaur fossils have been found. And actually, this quarry, Gruhalde Quarry, is a place where kids can explore and help look for the fossils. It's a tourist site, so maybe not just kids. <laughs> Visitors to the park in Germany, the Munchehagen Dinosaur Park, where Emil and Emily now are, if you go to that park, you can watch the team assemble all 330 bones. They're saying that's going to take them about three years to do. And it's part of this exhibit called Pladiosaurus, the origin of the giant dinosaurs. Cool. Sounds like a fun spot if you can go look for your own dinosaur. Well, that part is in Switzerland, the quarry. Oh. But then you can go to the dinosaur park in Germany and watch these two platysaurs being put back together. Gotcha. But yeah, why not visit both? <laughs> <laughs> in Honolulu, in Hawaii, in the U.S., the Bishop Museum is going to have a new exhibit called Expedition Dinosaurs Rise of the Mammals. This exhibit's going to show the day before and then the years after the asteroid hit Earth. And they're going to have 10 animatronic dinosaurs. It's a little bit early. We're talking about it. The exhibit runs from October 2nd, and then it goes till January 23rd of next year. 
You're getting that press release out early. Yeah. <laughs> Something to look forward to in the fall. <laughs> got a quick update in Norwich, England. They've got their 21 T-Rex sculptures, which we talked about before. You know, they've got different people decorating or painting each sculpture. So you've got a completely different feel and then they're kind of all around town. But they're the same sculpture, just painted in different ways. Yes. Yeah. Now they're there. They've been painted. They're around the city. I saw some pictures. There's one that's painted like a skeleton. One is all rainbow colors. There's one that's painted to look like the Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) So all these sculptures will be there until September 11th. And they all kind of lead to the Norwich Cathedral where Dippy is on display until October. Nice. Yeah. It's a good dinosaur city. Yeah, at least until... October. October. <laughs> and then it might all go away. <laughs> Maybe they'll come back. This next piece, it's a little bit different than what we normally talk about, but I thought it was some good advice and something that applies to a lot of people. So John Hutchinson, he shared on PeerJ, it was tips for early career researchers. And there's a lot of just life lessons in general. It includes... Figuring out what matters to you and balance that, your career, your relationships, what you do for fun. Focus on who you want to be and work on that. You know, don't compare yourself to others or I guess don't compare yourself in this context to the other big finds people are finding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah or even just like if there's somebody who's farther along in their career than you, you know, you can be working on your own career without comparing yourself to other people's success all the time. Yeah. Something that non-paleontologists have to deal with a lot with social media, too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think just everybody in general. Mm -hmm. Also, don't be afraid to ask for help and enjoy what's happening now. Be appreciative. Uh, He was recommending you keep a list of things you're thankful for and know that it's okay to fail sometimes and then learn from it. Yep. So, yes, he was saying for early career researchers, but it does seem like something that could be applied very generally. Yeah. I think so. It's just a fun pick-me-up from I Know Dino, your friendly dinosaur podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Brought to you by John Hutchinson. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next in the news is there's a new Marvel hero called Reptil. Yeah, I think so. I think it's called. Like Reptilian. I think that's how it's pronounced. Yeah. It's this character, Humberto Lopez, who can turn into a dinosaur. Well, actually, he can turn into any kind of dinosaur that he knows about. That's how the description sounded. I wonder if he can turn into birds or if they're going to make him turn into a pterosaur. I'm betting it's going to be a pterosaur. Uh, I think they're sticking to non-avian. Well, it's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. But in the images I've seen, it's non-avian dinosaurs. So it's like T-Rex and like Ankylosaurus, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, and this character is the son of two paleontologists, so he knows a lot. And then he also learns about more dinosaurs, I think, in each issue. Ah. So I really hope to see him in movies, that he makes it into the whole universe, and then we could see all kinds of different dinosaurs in the movies. That would make me a lot more excited about Marvel movies, if they were all of a sudden full of dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like, there's a couple Transformers movies where they're all dinosaur-y, mm-hmm. and those are better than the other Transformer movies. I see, yeah. But speaking of game news, I guess that wasn't a game, but media news, we have a game review of Lemmy Splash Sauropods. Oh, yeah. Sore, S-O-A-R, because you have them sore through. Exactly. 
<laughs> it's sort of like Angry Birds with sauropods that you launch. And thanks to Tyrant King for sharing this with us on Discord. Oh man, Garrett had a great time playing this. It is pretty fun, but I do want to explain why this game exists. Because why would you be launching sauropods across a map like Angry Birds? It, it demands explanation. Well, because why not? <laughs> well, there is, there is an actual reason. <laughs> so it's inspired by Brian J. Ford's highly disputed book about aquatic dinosaurs. And we're not just talking about Spinosaurus, but all sorts of dinosaurs, including sauropods and smaller theropods, all sorts of stuff. Aquatic dinosaurs were a popular opinion about 150 years ago. You know, there's those famous pictures of like sauropods and marshes mm -hmm. and all sorts of Charles things Knight's like that. depictions. Yeah. So this is like, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. But Ford's book was published in 2018. <laughs> so a little bit after the scientific consensus had been reached that dinosaurs were largely land living animals. Mm hmm. The most quoted line from his book is that dinosaurs went extinct due to a quote-unquote lack of sex lakes. Mm, the hypothesis yep. being that sauropods were too heavy to mate on land, so they mated in lakes. And then I guess after the end of the Cretaceous, there were no lakes. Hmm. And therefore, dinosaurs went extinct. Why they couldn't use an ocean or a river or some other body of water and where all the lakes went. Also the smaller non-avian dinosaurs? Yes. It, I mean, I think it's certainly possible that sauropods might have mated in a lake. You know, like I could see if we did a biomechanical study and it was like, oh, the legs of the animal was too heavy to support itself plus another animal on its back or something to that effect. One could come to that inclusion. But from what we know, sauropods laid eggs on land far from bodies of water in a lot of cases. Mm hmm and so that doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. Animals that mate in the ocean and then lay eggs on land tend to do it like right on the sand, really close to the water. So it's weird. There is like an explanation about how dinosaur footprints are usually found in sand. And like, where do you find sand? It's in the ocean. But we find it in mud and all sorts of other things all the time. Too. It's just where footprints are found. And then the laying eggs, like the eggs are laid near the footprints and he had he says that eggs are laid on land, but they're next to the footprints which they're supposed to be in the water. Anyway, there's a huge number of flaws in the argument, which is why the book is so disputed. And as far as I can tell, Ford's claims have never been peer reviewed. It's just written in a book because as we know, anybody can write a book. They're not nearly as scientifically rigorous as peer-reviewed journals are. I mean, a lot of books do reference a lot of journal articles and they're written by the same people that write peer-reviewed journal articles and those can be fantastic books, but they're never scrutinized or rarely scrutinized to the same extent that a peer-reviewed journal article is, which is why we like to stick to those. And as a result of that, the book currently sits at two and a half stars on Goodreads on a scale of one to five, with one star being by far the most common. Anyway, I did do a little digging to try to validate that it hadn't been peer-reviewed. I could only find one specific publication on the topic by Ford in 2012 in the magazine Laboratory News, but I can't find the information on peer review because the original article was taken down and usually journals will list a retraction in place, but in this case, there's just a page not found error. Oh, interesting. So it, it seems like not a very peer review journal type publication because they don't do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of like covering up a mistake rather than actually trying to advance the science. So on to the game. <laughs> okay. 
I do want to quickly explain, though, because you said, what about smaller dinosaurs? Okay. There's a sort of taking Spinosaurus and then just expanding that out, extrapolating it to all theropods. And like, well, Spinosaurus was aquatic and therefore all theropods. That was the logic going on there. And Spinosaurus is hotly debated. Exactly. And I, I mean, even the people that think Spinosaurus was the most aquatic don't think that it was completely incapable of doing anything on land. And it wasn't around at the end of the Cretaceous anyway, so it's, it doesn't make... Anyway, so <laughs> like you suggested, so I should game. go on to the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the quick summary of the sauropod game is that you're launching a sauropod to its mating lake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a sauropod waiting in a lake or near a lake, and you either have to get to that lake or knock the other sauropod into the lake and then land in the lake with the sauropod. I... I know you went into the backstory and how they probably weren't mating in lakes and all that, but let's not forget the fact that this game makes it that you can launch a sauropod <laughs> easily from a catapult. Was it's that? like a slingshot, slingshot, like Angry Birds. A slingshot, yeah. You're slingshotting a sauropod, so obviously this is not scientifically accurate. <laughs> no. But it's, I think it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, like, this claim is really sun, unscientifically accurate, so let's make a really unscientifically accurate game. Got just it. Poking yeah. fun at it. Also, the way they land looks uncomfortable yeah, sometimes. They do, like, ragdoll physics, basically, so it, it, like, the neck goes all nimbly-bimbly, and the legs go all flinging around and everything. So they often land in kind of a awkward, crumpled sort of right. look or to them. Or where its neck is literally bent backwards. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's like ragdoll physics if you played a game where, like, the people go all limp and mm -hmm. flopping all over the place. It's the same kind of thing, but with the sauropods. And it's kind of helpful, too, because you have to launch them through narrow spaces sometimes. And I don't even know if they could fit through some of them without sort of crumpling up a little bit. But it's really enjoyable. I'd say it's about 30 minutes to an hour of gameplay. Oh, you finished the whole game? Yeah. I, while sitting next to you, I, I showed it to Sabrina and I was like, I'm going to just play the whole game. There's a bonus to it, which is finding and squishing a turtle in every level. Yeah. See, <laughs> I thought the game was pretty cool until Garrett pointed out this bonus. I was like, why did they have to add this? And that's when I stopped paying attention. <laughs> it's, it's pretty enjoyable. There's, a, I think there's only 12 levels, so it's like... It's a fun thing to do for, yeah, like a half hour to an hour. It's built on Unity and runs natively on HTML5 too, which means there's no JavaScript garbage required. So it means you just play in your browser. Yep. It's pretty fun. I'll have a link in our show notes on our website if you want to try out the game. Do you get anything for finishing the game? It gives you like little achievement sort of things. Like I think it was like copulating Colossus for the <laughs> completing all the levels and for the squishing all the turtles. It says like turtle nachos <laughs> from what i could tell it was you launch the sauropod and then as long as both sauropods were in some kind of water yep you finished that level yep exactly a little hearts come out of the sauropod mm -hmm. <laughs> it's pretty enjoyable <laughs> highly recommended i don't know about the turtle part it's good mm, if you say so <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Tanny Calagrius, which was a request from Noctum Von Doom via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Tanny Calagrius was a basal Salurosaur theropod that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now the U.S., and it was found in a few places. It looks like a typical theropod with the shorter arms and the long tail, and it had a large skull and long, lightly built legs. As you probably know, because it was a theropod, it was carnivorous. Unless it's a therizinosaur, but this isn't. Good point. The holotype of Tanny Calagrius was collected in 1995 during an excavation by Western Paleontological Laboratories in the Bone Cabin Quarry West in Wyoming, and that's in the Morrison Formation. The holotype includes an incomplete skull and lower jaws and parts of the skeleton, chevrons, gastralia fragments, ulnae, humeri, fibula, metatarsals, a complete right foot. That's pretty good. Yeah. Especially that it has part of a skull and a whole bunch of the body. Yes, but the skull is not that well known. Oh, so incomplete on the less complete end of the spectrum. It just depends, I think, (laughs) what you're comparing it to. Okay. (laughs) So when the holotype was first found, it was thought to be Silurus fragilis, That was in 1998 by Miles and others. And then Kenneth Carpenter and others named Tanny Calagrius in 2005. The reason probably for some of the confusion is other partial skeletons that were found nearby included Silurus and Ornitholestes. So Carpenter and others compared the fossils and said, no, this dinosaur is not Silurus or Ornitholestes. Of all the known theropods in the Morrison Formation, Tanny Calagrius is most similar to Silurus, but it's more primitive. Carpenter and all wrote, quote, small theropods during the late Jurassic were clearly more diverse than previously realized, end quote. There's a paratype of Tanny Calagrius that includes an incomplete hand found in the bone cabin quarry in Wyoming, and Henry Osborne had referred to it as an Ornitholestes hermini in 1903. There's also a referred premaxilla that was previously thought to be Stoxosaurus clevelandi. That was since 1974. And it had been found along with an ilium in the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry in Utah. But there's no ilium known for Tanny Calagrius, so they couldn't compare them to be sure. Some distal pubes found in Colorado were referred to Silurus in 1920 by Charles Gilmore, but now they're thought to be Tanny Calagrius. The type species is Tanny Calagrius top wilsoni, and the genus name Tanny Calagrius means long limb hunter or stretched out limb hunter. Lanky hunter. Yeah, it's based on the fact that Tanny Calagrius has longer forelimbs and hind limbs compared to Silurus. And the species name top wilsoni is in honor of George quote unquote top Wilson. And from the paper, it said that he is, quote, retired United States Marine Corps. He is also the 
father of a benefactor who supported the research. So that was nice of them. The holotype of Tanny Calagrius was a subadult. It was about 11 feet or 3.3 meters long. But the premaxilla found in the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry was part of an individual estimated to be 13 feet or 4 meters long and estimated to weigh 260 pounds or 120 kilograms. That sounds much bigger than Silurus, which was more like Velociraptor size and I think under 50 pounds. It's probably one of the reasons they decided it was a separate genera. Yeah, that is way, way bigger, even as a subadult. That's a good reason. It's actually unclear how big an adult could get because the age of that premaxilla specimen is unclear. So maybe it got even bigger. Yeah. You can see Tanny Calagrius at the North American Museum of Ancient Life in Lehigh, Utah. And it also appears in Jurassic World Alive. They really added a lot of dinosaurs to that game. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like half of your recent dinosaurs of the day are in there. It's good. And if you play it, you learn about a wide variety of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. I think that's where some of our requests come from, too, mm. is people seeing them in that game. And some of them are really realistic. They add feathers and stuff, mm -hmm. unlike in the movies. But, well, the movies were realistic for the time. Yes. And our fun fact for the day is that dinosaurs don't seem to fit the quote-unquote rules about how animals change in colder climates. What does that mean? So there are two specific rules, at least that I've heard of, maybe the two more common ones that people refer to when it's like, what's the difference between an animal that grows up in a polar or colder climate compared to one that's closer to the equator in a warmer climate? And there are Bergman's rule and Allen's rule. Bergman's rule was made by Carl Bergman in about 1847 or 1848. In 1848, he published, quote, on the relation of the heat economy of animals to their size, end quote. But that's a translation from the original German. So it was depending on your size, you might be warmer? Yeah, it's it's like heat economy. You can think of like efficiency. So basically it said that animals got more massive as they were in colder climates because they have a lower surface area to volume ratio, which helps you keep your heat in. Mm. So if you imagine like, for example, a radiator has like fins, really thin fins to cool off. The thinner something is, the quicker it can dissipate heat. So basically if it puts on a bunch of bulk, but has the same sort of surface area, it's like I guess the difference between like an ice cube melting in something, which is sort of thicker and has more mass than if you had like a real thin sheet of ice, it would melt more quickly hmm. because it can interact with the environment faster through conduction and convection. If you want to get into thermodynamics, <laughs> <laughs> but specifically his rule was basically that as you get closer to the poles or really in colder climates, you get animals that are larger and you can either apply that to groups like you can say penguins is a very typical example because galapagos penguins are really small those are the farthest north i believe and i think penguins are only in the southern hemisphere i'm pretty sure so it's literally north versus south and then when you get all the way to the south and you're on antarctica you have the emperor penguins which are the biggest mm -hmm. and there are some in between that seem to sort of fit that trend so the warmer penguins are smaller than the colder penguins okay so we're looking at 
groups, not just animals in general, because I was thinking penguins are not that large compared <laughs> to other animals. <laughs> yes. So you have, and it's weird because, yeah, you can look at it as like penguins and say like, okay, the ones near the equator are smaller. But then like you say, if you're looking at mammals mm -hmm. or something, it might not hold. Like the broader group makes it a little more difficult. But sometimes they do apply them to species. So for example, bald eagles, when I was going through the bald eagle, treason day turkey, fun fact. <laughs> Bald eagles are larger. They're the largest in Alaska, which is the coldest and most polar form of bald eagles, basically, or in northern Canada. Whereas when they're down farther in the south, like in Florida, for example, they're a lot smaller. So even within that species, you see that. And then it makes it kind of weird because people want to give an average and say like a bald eagle weighs about this much. But there's a couple pounds difference between an average Floridian bald eagle and an average Alaskan bald eagle. And there's like maybe a foot different in wingspan too. Hmm. So it's like, yes, you could give this average, but if you're in Florida talking about the average, you might be way off. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in Alaska, you're probably talking about maybe something in Minnesota in between. So even though they call it a rule, it's really more of a correlation. And because Earth is colder near the poles, a lot of times the rule is restated that animals are larger near the poles rather than larger in colder climates. But the original rule was colder climates, which is sort of important to me because there are lots of places that have higher elevation. So you can be near the equator and if you're on like Kilimanjaro, it's really cold up there. It should apply to the animals that live up in the mountain. Mm -hmm. So they should be a lot bigger than the ones down in the savannah, for example. But Bergman's rule, I don't really like the fact that it's called a rule because there are so many exceptions to it. There are probably more exceptions to it than there are actual things that follow the rule. I think birds are one of the ones that follow the rule better. It seems like usually when you get closer to the poles, birds get bigger. But There's lots of other animals that don't. The one thing that's going for Bergman's rule is that that surface area to mass ratio helps keep them warm. But in cold climates and high latitudes, a lot of times there's less food available, which tends to make things smaller. And there's just lots of competing things on body mass and size that aren't equated for in just like how cold it is. Also, it's pretty interesting that some polar human populations follow Bergman's rule with less surface area as an advantage and have a higher average body mass. But there are lots of other populations of humans that are lighter than average and just smaller. Hmm. So it's like, even within humans, it, it doesn't really work. It's like some of the groups work and other groups don't work. So yeah, it's, it's inconsistent. However, all of those humans do follow a different rule, which is called Allen's rule. And they have, on average, shorter limbs hmm. than <laughs> humans that are closer to the equator. I think all of them. I'm not positive about that. There might be an outlier somewhere. So Allen's rule was written by Joel Allen in 1877, and it's that animals in cold climates have shorter limbs and other appendages, in parentheses, but mostly we're talking about limbs, than warm weather animals. And this is pretty obvious why you'd want that. If you have really long arms and your heart is like pumping blood to your extremities, you've got more of a risk of frostbite or just cooling down too much. So you want to keep that blood closer to your core and your limbs might get shorter in mm. cold places. I noticed one really obvious exception to this, though, which is with birds, because they tend to have larger wingspans near the poles, like with bald eagles. So they have pretty long appendages with that extra large wingspan and their higher body mass. So obviously it doesn't work there. Although I guess with penguins, it might work because they have shorter flippers than lots of bird wings. So maybe that works. 
with humans, aren't there taller people in Scandinavia? Like Scandinavia is known for having tall people. Yeah, that's a good point. And they're pretty far north. They are. So that that would be a, a one notable exception. Okay. So weirdly, though, the reason I got onto this is the connection with dinosaurs. So there are a lot of large individuals that are closer to the equator. And I think on average, dinosaurs probably are larger, closer to the equator than they are when they're closer to the pole. So it's almost like the inverse of Bergman's rule. Because, again, there are lots of interacting factors. But for an example, in Victoria, Australia, which is the part of Australia, which was closest to the pole when dinosaurs were around and presumably the coldest. That's where you find Australia's smallest dinosaurs. That's where all those little tiny, like Leelanosaura and Quantasaurus and all those little ones are. And we don't see any evidence of sauropods there. Whereas you go farther north, closer to the equator, and in a warmer climate, and there's all these huge sauropods. <laughs> so obviously it's not working out in Australia, at least. Mm -hmm. And I think sauropods are a big part of that because. In general, we don't know of many sauropods near the poles at all, but it might be a limitation of the type of ground that sauropods use to nest. Not the, I suppose it could be lake related, but I don't think it is. <laughs> I think it's more that they buried their eggs and walked away from them. And if you bury your eggs in frozen ground, the eggs aren't going to survive and you're not going to establish a population there. So they needed to be somewhere warm enough that they could rely on the environment to incubate their eggs because they weren't going to sit on them. Another example is the Maastrichtian Arctic Tyrannosaur Nanuxaurus, which is smaller than its warmer climate dwelling cousins. And when I was Googling, you know, like, give me an example of Bergman's rule for dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs, because I really wanted one that like supported it. Mostly what I found was reports of Nanuxaurus essentially saying like Nanuxaurus is disproving mm -hmm. <laughs> Bergman's rules for dinosaurs because it was around right around the same time as T-Rex, maybe a million or two years earlier. But the original paper title basically tells you everything you need to know, which is, quote, a diminutive new tyrannosaur from the top of the world, end quote, by Fiorio and Tykoski. Originally, it was estimated at under one ton. Now, some consider it to be about Albertosaurus in size. <laughs> but either way, it's certainly not larger than T-Rex, which is what you'd expect if it was Bergman's rule, right? Right. Because it's T-Rex. Yeah. So it should be like extra huge. And it's like, no, it's smaller. So they were talking at the time about maybe it was some sort of island dwarfism or insular dwarfism. It could also just be to broaden that out a little bit more that it's an ad adaptation to the polar climate and less resources. Mm -hmm. And living in darkness. Exactly. So the herbivores were living in darkness. Maybe that made them smaller. And then the predators had to be smaller to match because that's one of the theories on why dinosaurs got big was the herbivores got big and then the, the predators got big to sort of like match them. An interesting aside here, though, is that Alaskan troodontids seem to be about 50% larger than individuals from farther south. So maybe... That's the example where Bergman's rule is following. But if you have a rule where half the time it's right and half the time it's wrong, it's not much of a rule that is just confirmation bias on picking and choosing which one counts. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that both Nanuxaurus and the Troodontids in Alaska were converging on sort of a similar optimal body size for the environment that they were in. And that was really the driving force and not anything about the temperature. I also think that Alan's rule seems to have a really big mammal slash incubating bird bias because if you lay eggs in a nest, they're not going to survive on the tundra without incubation. 
So you don't find any amphibians or lizards near the poles. And then again, their ectothermy might be a problem there. And then that also with things like sauropods, which need to lay their eggs in the dirt and can't incubate them, they can't make it there. So when you're looking at a modern ecosystem, which often is dominated by mammals and birds, at least on the the larger animal side of things, yes, maybe for us, it's better to have less surface area and it's better to be bigger near the poles. But when you're talking about dinosaurs, I don't think it really fits and maybe other animal groups as well. So yeah, these two rules basically are correlations of current animal life on earth not really rules at all, and not even that good for current life on Earth. Certainly not good for dinosaurs. It sounded like it was a starting point. Yeah. And that's good. That happens all the time with science. Yes. I mean, they point to some key things, like having shorter limbs is beneficial in cold climates, Mm -hmm. and that ratio of surface area to body mass is helpful when you're endothermic, maybe a little bit too when you're ectothermic. But Although I will point out, when we're in cold climates, you tend to do better than me. Even though I have longer limbs, Mm -hmm. but I am more massive. Oh, true. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I really think these are oversimplifications. I think it might be time to put Bergman's rule and Allen rule sort of out to pasture, replace them with more complex theories. (laughs) It gets cited pretty often, though. You'll see Bergman's rule now and then when people are talking, especially when they're talking about birding. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most relevant time for them. Maybe Bergman's rule can still apply to birds. Yeah, it seems to. It seems to work pretty well for birds. But there are even exceptions to birds, so who knows? Mm. Well, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and uh, you can help us get to our goal of 200 patrons on a live Q&A. We're pretty close. So you can do that by joining patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.